The Daily Rios, episode 484, Alex Ross's Marvel Timeless Mural, A Breakdown, Part 3. Hey everyone, this is your host, Peter. Part 3 of a series of episodes I'm doing this week, taking a look at Marvel Timeless, the image created by Alex Ross, uh, this time covering Cyclops and Phoenix, Doctor Strange, Nightcrawler and Colossus, Black Panther, Black Widow, Wolverine, Captain America, and The Hulk. So the format for these episodes, if this is your first episode this week, is I'm going to talk about the design, the design choices that Alex Ross uh, picked for the image, and then I'm going to talk about those stories that come to mind when I think about these individual characters. So we're going to start with both Cyclops and Phoenix. Let's start with the design of Cyclops. So this version that Ross has created is fairly traditional for Cyclops uh, from the time all the X-Men got out of their original Kirby look and into new costumes, which would be X-Men 39 from 1967 as drawn by Don Heck. And he would keep this look more or less uh, all the way through to his days with X-Factor. Now, to be specific about the look that Ross has chosen, you have to look at the visor. The visor is the key. It has a more rounded featuring. Uh, the gold metal is not just around the eyepiece. It also connects to the ears. And I'm fairly certain this goes all the way back to Giant Size X-Men in 1975 by Dave Cockrum. Because you can see the two different versions of Cyclops' visor on that cover. So if you look at the group of X-Men, the group of original X-Men, at the top of Giant Sized, you can see that Cyclops is wearing the visor that he had up to that point, like especially during, you know, the last Neil Adams stories. Uh, it's, it's rounded, it's narrow, it's oval, but it doesn't go, like, to the ears, right? Um, but when you look at the new X-Men that are bursting through the cover, you can see Cyclops is wearing this new visor. It's bigger on his face, it's more rounded, and again, it the gold covering and the gold metal covers the ears. Uh, the folds on his boots are larger in the Alex Ross image, so that makes me think of Dave Cockrum as well. I'm pretty sure I read an interview with John Byrne where he said slowly over time, he wanted to decrease the, the length and, and the width of those folds. Uh, and, and get him a little bit closer to the calf, a little bit closer to the boot. Uh, and then the belt buckle for Cyclops is red and black with no hint of yellow in it. So again, I'm thinking this is early giant-sized Cockrum Cyclops more than anything. But still, that look survived for a long time, and it is pretty timeless. Phoenix is straight out of Uncanny X-Men 101, again, designed by Cockrum. You can definitely pinpoint this as being more in a cockrum flare because of the sash. The sash around her waist has a lot of folds in it. And if you look at later burn designs of Phoenix, uh, the, the sash is kind of just like a flat belt. It almost looks like it's part of the green bodysuit with very little folding. So um, 
that's one of the ways I thought maybe it was connected more to Cockrum. And Cockrum also tended to draw Jean Grey in a little curvier manner, such as what Alex Ross is doing here, whereas John Byrne, his approach to the character was a little bit thinner. Now, story-wise, um, I tend to think of both of them together. Uncanny X-Men 308 from 1993 with art by John Romita Jr. It's the issue where Jean proposes to Scott, where she asks him to marry her. That's always an issue that stands out in my mind. It's a Thanksgiving issue. A lot of the X-Men are just at the mansion. They're playing football. They're having the dinner together. And it's really just an exploration of their lives, which is, uh, for me, the the theme of the X-Men book that I gravitate towards the most. It's, it's really the issues that I enjoy the most when it comes to the X-Men. For Jean, her, her return to life in Fantastic Four 286 in 1985, and then, of course, all the follow-up uh, through to X-Factor, that's pretty strong in my mind. I can still remember that cover of that Fantastic Four issue. And uh, that was by John Byrne and Chris Claremont and Jackson Geis, with a thank you to Kirk Busiek. Um, apparently, there was a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that got a little messy, um, you know, bruised egos and whatever, but I still remember that issue. Also for Gene, another comic that stands out is Phoenix the Untold Story, a one-shot from 1984. It's a reprinting of X-Men 137, the death of uh, Phoenix and the end of the Dark Phoenix saga, but it has the original ending. And then it has a whole bunch of interviews and pinups and, and other things. Um, and I'm fairly certain I read that one shot before I ever read Dark Phoenix Saga. So I had read what they originally intended to do rather than what they actually did. So uh, for me, uh, first getting into anything that had to do with Jean Grey, it was more about her coming to life. I, I never read stories when she was alive because I wasn't reading comics at that time. Uh, it's kind of like Barry Allen, right? You know, post-crisis post Barry Allen was sometimes more important to the DC universe than when he was alive. And it's kind of the same thing when I started to read about Jean Grey. You know, it was more about when she was dead and when she came back rather than when she was first alive. Uh, for Scott, for Cyclops, I wrote down uh, his role in Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men, which I'm just about ready to finish. Um... I've been reading that series along with early episodes of uh, the Uncanny X cast uh, because I realized I hadn't finished Joss Whedon's run, so I thought, oh, this would be great. You know, I can finish it and read along with, uh, listen along to these older episodes. Artwork by John Cassidy. Uh, Cyclops is so great in that series. I mean, he comes across as clear-headed and he's, he's a general and he knows what he wants out of the X-Men, and I really like that. And I also really liked when he was a little bit more militant after uh, Avengers versus X-Men. So when Bendis took over both uh, Uncanny X-Men and also all-new X-Men, um, you know, you got that Cyclops that um, uh, was a little bit colder and and not afraid to be uh, called a villain, if you want to say. Um, and it was Chris Bacalo on art. Uh, this was in 2013, you know, the whole Cyclops was right mentality, right? Um, I really like that approach to that character as well. 
Of course, I could li list Dark, Dark Phoenix Saga, but I think that's a, a, an obvious um, addition to anybody's list when it comes to the X-Men. All right, let's go to Doctor Strange. Let's talk about the design of Doctor Strange. Now, when you look at the Alex Ross image, no doubt when you have that crazy collar, you're going old school Doctor Strange here because nowadays it's just not as wild and it's not as high. So Ross is definitely channeling Ditko's version here, um, but not necessarily the original look from, from his first appearance in Strange Tales 110. Because if the character has his red cloak and the amulet is a circle, this is from later Ditko stories. Strange first received uh, this red cloak and this version of the amulet in Strange Tales 127, and he would start wearing them the following, following issue. Uh, in his first few appearances, he didn't have a cloak at all, and when he finally did get one, it was blue, and the amulet was set on a square background. So what you're seeing here is, again, to go back to the timeless theme, you're going back to the um, strange look that um, makes sense, right? The one that's been around for a while and the one that probably comes to mind. Now, obviously, it had some small changes here and there, depending on the artist, and, uh, you know, you don't want to count when he wore a full mask over his head and, and he became more of like a superhero. I guess this was during when uh, Gene Colan was drawing the book. Now, to be, to be really picky, um, the first appearances of the Red Cloak didn't have any yellow borders along the edges. It had this swirly design, but it was all red. And eventually, yellow was added to the edges um, later. I don't know exactly when, but it didn't start out that way. And I think I've seen a few reprints where they almost retroactively go back and color the edges yellow, but that's not what I'm seeing when I did a Google search for, uh, you know, the original appearances and the original scans of the comics. Of the comics. So um, that yellow border is also sort of like a later addition. Now, in Alex Ross's drawing, Strange's face isn't as thin and long as Ditko would draw it, but the white streaks in his hair are pretty high, just like how Ditko drew them. Um, they seem like they're more angled off the corners of the forehead, the top of the forehead, rather than being colored horizontally at the temples, which is, I think, how he's drawn now, especially in the movies, right? And... You know, when I think about this difference, and this is really the first time I really thought about it, I like when it's placed higher, when the streaks are like higher along the, the hairline. It gives the character an oddity, you know, a strangeness, if you will. Um, just having it at the temples, eh, that just means he's old, right? And we already get that with Mr. Fantastic. So uh, I like that little discrepancy, and I'm glad Alex Ross, Alex Ross is pointing it out. Story-wise, I don't have any real strong recommendations for Doctor Strange. I collected a few issues in the 80s from his second series, some somewhere around 64 through 68, and some random Secret Wars 2 tie-in issue. Um, these were by Roger Stern, Paul Smith on art, Steve Lealoa, uh did a fill-in. The thing I remember the most from that tiny run that I read is I remember seeing a death certificate for Dracula and for all the vampires in the Marvel Universe in one of the letter columns. 
because when I started reading Doctor Strange, they had just wrapped up this story with Dracula. I'm assuming it's the same one from Tomb of Dracula. And apparently Strange wiped out all of the vampires in the Marvel Universe using something called the Montesi formula. And then, of course, eventually, you know, that would be changed. But seeing that death certificate, you know, the way Marvel was kind of like, yep, that story really did happen. That was kind of fun for me when I was younger. And uh, I've always wanted to go back and see what actually happened. So I was going through my notes and my inventory for this episode and came across that I actually do have uh, Doctor Strange issue 62, which is the last chapter with Strange fighting Dracula. So maybe I should read that. I did read the Marvel Knights four-issue run entitled Flight of Bones from 1999. That was by Dan Jolly, Tony Harris, Paul Chadwick. I don't remember it, though. And I have the first 11 issues of the Jason Aaron, Chris Piccolo run sitting there just waiting to be read. And that's from 2015. And this was for Marvel's all-new, all-different relaunch. I probably picked it up because Jason Aaron wrote that pretty amazing story in Thor called God Butcher. Um, but I haven't read the Doctor Strange stuff. So, so yeah, I'm, I don't really have a lot of recommendations. The character is one of my uncle's favorite characters, though, which is kind of cool because that's the uncle that got me into comics. Um, it's either one of his favorites or it is his favorite. And I'm pretty sure he dressed up like Doctor Strange, um, either for a surprise party or or Halloween. All right, let's go to Nightcrawler and Colossus. So the design, again, for both, is kind of emulating a lot of what Cockrum brought to the characters, just like with Phoenix. Um, when you look at Colossus, if you see that he has those red armbands on, the shorter red armbands, we're talking early Colossus, right? This isn't the Jim Lee Colossus. Um, both of these looks survived at least for 10 years for both of the characters. Uh, Colossus wouldn't change out of this look until after the first Secret War, so that was sometimes around, sometime around 1984. Nightcrawler would get a new look sometime during Excalibur in the early 90s, I think. Now, with Nightcrawler, just like I talked about um, Beast um, in last episode, I think it was, I feel like Ross is channeling a darker version of Nightcrawler with black fur instead of blue, right? Um, it's even it's even kind of like a dark indigo, which I guess makes sense if it's you know if he's going to blend in with the shadows. Um, Cockrum's version of of Kurt was tall when he wasn't slouching, when he wasn't crawling around. He actually was tall when you look at him against the other X Men. I kind of get that feeling here, but I will say the way that Ross interprets the character to be a little more lithe here, a little thinner, that makes me feel more like it's similar to John Byrne's portrayal. Story-wise, again, not a lot here. To me, these are team characters, even if they have had solo adventures. I just think of them as like X-Men, right? So again, for Colossus, I could go back to Astonishing X-Men. Um, I could go back to X-Men, Uncanny X-Men 183. The bar fight that he had with Juggernaut was always kind of fun. Uh, when he returned from Secret Wars, his breakup with Kitty, Kitty Pride, made for a lot of drama. So it was kind of fun to see. Um, I really liked 
when he was one of Magneto's acolytes after Fatal Attractions. That was pretty great, and I thought it was an interesting exploration of his character. Colossus was always very self-tormented, so that was a nice run. Um, I wish they would have done more with that. There's also a really great moment during the Mutant Massacre where he snaps one of the Marauders' necks, and, and he turns to another one uh, that was going after Kitty and says, make peace with your gods, you are next, right? It's just, there was like this, I don't know, like this weight to the character, and I, I feel that weight when I read these early Cochrane issues, too. Um, he has a brooding nature. Uh, maybe it's because he's Russian. I don't know. He feels like, um, he feels ominous, a little poetic, darkly romantic. Uh, so I, I dig that. Um, Nightcrawler, again, I can't really say much came to mind. Um, I probably have to do, like, a short list of some of my favorite X-Men stories, maybe when I get to Storm next episode, because um, I just don't have many that stand out for Nightcrawler. So if you do, let me know. Let's go to Black Panther. All right, so the design that we got here, Ross is going with the all-black simple look. It's even kind of charcoal-y. Um, this would be from Fantastic Four Annual 5 in 1967, not quite a year after his first appearance. The cloak is gone. The gray coloring on the trunks, that's gone. Uh, you can still see the trunks and the belt, and you can you can see the boots um, that he has boots on, but it's all one color. And if you look at the gloves and the boots, you can you have to look closely. They still retain that design where there's a whole bunch of lines in them. Um, I guess when Kirby did the redesign in that Fantastic Four annual, maybe he wanted to move away from Black Panther being the bombastic king and wanted something a little sleeker for the jungle, uh, which is kind of cool. And this sort of sleeker look is the same outfit he would wear during his time with the Avengers. I think in the 80s he got the cape back. In fact, it became like a larger cape with a collar. Um, and like I talked about last episode and with Nightcrawler, his coloring would often change in the comics from black to and gray to black with blue highlights or blue with black highlights. Um, starting with his Marvel Knights run by Mark Texiera, Black Panther would start to incorporate gold accents, mostly wherever his vibranium weapons fell, like either at the collar or the gauntlets or his boots. Uh, and then recently it's gone back to being all black uh, with accents of white or silver, much like the movie again. Story-wise, this is a no-brainer. Christopher Priest's run from 1980 through 2003, done and done. Probably my favorite Marvel run ever, and it's been fully traded. Just read it. Seriously, it is great. It is funny. It is political. It is firmly planted within the larger Marvel Universe. It's firmly planted within Black Panther's history. There would be no Wakanda Forever without this run. Um, I started it because I was told about one of the later issues where all of these kings of the Marvel Universe were together. Black Panther, Magneto, Doctor Doom, Namor, and they were all going up against some, you know, something to do with the Deviants. Uh, and it and it was great because it was an interesting way to use those very royal characters, those characters that were leaders of nations, right? I read all the way through to the end. I kept reading with Casper Cole when he took over. Uh, I read The Crew 
all seven issues of The Crew. I just think it's great. I think it's one of the best series that Marvel has ever done. And I have a hard time believing that some of the other Black Panther series are, are just as good. But who knows? Maybe I'll read them someday. So that's my only and strongest recommendation. Black Widow, sporting her 1970s look, has started in Amazing Spider-Man 86 from 1970. Gone is her original Madame Natasha fur coat look. Gone is when she had that uh, fishnet superhero costume where she kind of looked like Black Canary. For Amazing Spider-Man, John Romita uh, had her design her own new, sleek, sexy spy catsuit. And this is where you get the gauntlet, gauntlet wrist shooters. Uh, you get the chain belt and all of that red hair flowing. Apparently in the story, she takes her inspiration from Spider-Man. And that's why she gets a, a new widow's line so she can swing around. But in that first story, her accents are white, not yellow. And in the Alex Ross drawing, it's yellow. So in her next short run of appearances following that issue, this would be Amazing Adventures, that's where the accents turn yellow. And she'll retain this look throughout the 70s, including a lengthy co-starring run in Daredevil and, uh, you know, it's all that Jean Colon art where she gets that, you know, that hairstyle, that flair that Alex Ross is creating. And uh, it's just so cool to see him use that look. Now, my first exposure to the character was in her Frank Miller designed look. This was the, again, a skin tight suit, but it's gray. And she has a spider emblem on her chest and on her back. And she has short hair. And the way Frank Miller draws her, she's much more fluid, you know, she, she's got that ballet training and, uh, kind of like with Daredevil, he has her moving around in a way that, um, is smoother. Um, she's using her skills. She's less of like a, a fighting rough mercenary and more like a dancer. And, and I really like that. And that look started in Daredevil 187 in 1982. Story-wise, not a, not a lot here, just like Doctor Strange. Um, I have the Marvel fanfare issues that George Perez drew. This is issues 10 through 14. I haven't read them. I did read and did collect the three-issue Marvel Knights mini from 1999. This was by Devin Grayson and J.G. Jones. Apparently, that was her first multi-part self-titled comic. So that's crazy. It took till 1999. Um, this is where the whole Red Room concept first came into play. It also featured the Yelena Black Widow, although she first appeared in the Inhumans at the time, and I believe that's the character we're getting in the Black Widow movie. Beyond that, not much else. Not much else that I can think of. Um, I don't know if I, I just haven't read a lot of Black Widow stuff, or she wasn't around in the Avengers or West Coast Avengers when I was reading it, you know? Or she's, she was just in the background. All right, let's go to Wolverine. The design. Now, I talked about this in part one of this series. Ross is going with the brown suit over the yellow and blue uh, because it's the suit that he wore the longest over his many various appearances. Now, I'm not sure if that sta stands true to this day, but I think that's the case. The brown suit first appeared in Uncanny X-Men 139 with art by John Byrne. This was mid-1980. It's hard to get a feel 
if Alex Ross is channeling any particular artist, because it's not quite the burn look. You know, Logan's not as stocky. Um, and it's not quite Paul Smith's version, because the design in the face mask is not the same. So I guess this is kind of like Alex Ross's version, which makes sense. Story-wise, okay. Weapon X from Marvel Comics Presents, starting in issue 72. I probably saw an, a house ad at the time, because otherwise, why would I pick it up? You know, I had no idea what I was getting. Um, I didn't really know who Barry Windsor Smith was, but the story is great. It's beautiful to look at, and it is so influential. I mean, how many movie ideas have come out of that one story, right? And how many comics followed it up? Also, I want to recommend Enemy of the State and Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. by Mark Miller and John Romita Jr., starting in 2004 with Wolverine issue 20, when it was a Marvel Knights title. It would run for 12 issues. It was bombastic. It was rowdy. It put Wolverine smack in the middle of the mar larger Marvel Universe. I haven't read it since then, but it still sticks as being one that I, that I enjoyed. Also, Wolverine in Black Panther, in a story also called Enemy of the State, starting in issue 41 of the Priest run. The way Priest handles Wolverine is hilarious. Um, he doesn't take the character too seriously, so he gets punked quite often, and it's one of the more unique takes of Wolverine, I think. So it's only like th five issues, maybe? Three or five issues? So good, so good. Um... I did read Old Man Logan, I think even within the last five to six years, but I don't remember much. I've never read Origin. This is controversial, but I'm not necessarily a fan of Wolverine's first miniseries by Claremont and Frank Miller. You know, I read it. I don't know what I think of it. Maybe, I'll, maybe I would think of it differently now. Um, the last time I felt like Wolverine was really interesting was during House of M. So when he comes back from House of M, he gets his memories back. And I always wanted Marvel to do something different with the whole mystery behind Wolverine. You know, for the longest time, he didn't know his origins. I think the readers knew more about the various different origins than he did. You know, they would always drop hints for the readers, but never for Wolverine. So here he is in House of M. He gets all of his memories. And what I wanted them to do is flip it. I wanted him to know everything, but now the readers would be in the dark. Almost to say, like, everything you knew is wrong, and he's the only one that knows, and he would be the one that would dole out information. You know, I think that could have been really cool, but that's not the way they went. I probably could list a whole bunch of other Wolverine stories, but I'm sure you have your own. Let's go to Captain America. All right, design-wise, this is pretty much as timeless as you can get for the comics. Uh, Kirby designed. I'm trying to place where I've seen the way Alex Ross does the neckline because the the mask clearly stops at the um the, the scale armor right that chain mail armor in the original Kirby design the neck area was open to the skin since Captain America wore a helmet with a mask right but then once it was all connected a lot of that scaling would either go up to the neck or I don't know you just didn't see as sharp a, as a delineation as you do here with Alex Ross, it really makes the chainmail feel like a piece of armor that is on him rather than part of the costuming. 
but regardless, the costume is iconic, it works for the comics, and it works for this image. Story-wise, right away, the first thing that comes to mind for me when I think of Captain America, Adventures of Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty, 1 through 4, from 1991. It's a little bit of an unknown story. It was four prestige format books, and it basically expanded on the origins of Captain America. And it's by Fabian Nicieza, uh, Fabian Nicieza Kevin McGuire, Terry Austin, Richard Starkings, Paul Mounts. I mean, these are pretty big names. It's very pulp. It's very golden age in its feeling. And it is such a good story. It's probably the first origin story I read for the character. So if you don't know it, get your hands on it if you can. Because um, it's a book that I would really like to do a reread on it. Um, because I remember how much I liked it. I also have to give... The mid-80s Scourge story that ran throughout various Marvel comics at the time, where this assassin named Scourge was going around and killing all these lame villains, and then uh, it would wrap up in Captain America in a uh, three-issue story from 318 through, through 320. And it's not the greatest ending of the story, but there's something I kind of like about the whole, you know, slaughter of villains at the bar with no name and Captain America figuring out trying to figure out who this is and um eventually in Thunderbolts the character is brought back so yeah just just a weird odd 80s thing it's not quite the same character but you can't go wrong with um Truth Red White and Black by Robert Morales and Kyle Baker another Captain America story that I really like outside of that you know I read Captain America in the 80s. I read that Red Skull storyline going up to issue 300. I've never read Winter Soldier. I've never read, like, the Mark Wade run, which I hear is, was really popular. I think I read the character more in Avengers or in Events than I did in his solo book. All right, finally, whew, the Hulk. Design-wise, for me, if the Hulk... If, if he has hair on the, just on the top of his head and not down around his ears, then that's Jack Kirby. Now, is it timeless, though? I don't know. This, this is kind of interesting. Let me know what you think about this. I could make a strong case that the Hulk look by Sal Buscema is more timeless than the, than the Jack Kirby look. Um, it definitely feels like the Sal version was what I used to see in ads and in marketing and merchandise. You know, I totally understand wanting to capture the the Frankenstein or Jekyll and Hyde version of, of Jack Kirby. But again, what's timeless? So for Alex Ross, that's timeless. But I don't know. For me, I see a different look. Story-wise, uh, Future Imperfect from 1992, the first appearance of Maestro, Peter David, George Perez. Oh, that beautiful George Perez artwork all over the place. I think they just recently collected it again, but if you've, if you've never read it, read it. It's just so chock full of Marvel Easter eggs. It's so great. What's funny is I think I've read maybe five issues of any Peter David Hulk comics. You know, he had a lengthy run and I barely read it, um, but I did read his final issue, issue 467, and it is an absolute must read. The way it's told, the artwork... Um, especially because it is Peter David's, David's final issue, and it has such a clear commentary on his exit. You know, if you don't know anything about it, you can certainly feel that he was not quite happy with uh, having to be taken off the book. 
but it is a great issue for for a, a writer's um, final run on a on a lengthy title. Um, I also really liked what Mark Wade did for the concept of Hulk in uh, Indestructible Hulk. This is for the Marvel Now um, relaunch in 2012. That was that was a good run of books. And uh, again, in the 80s, I collected Hulk leading up to issue 300. I don't remember much. Um, I'd like to read the Burn story someday. I can't remember Planet Hulk that much. The Bruce Jones stories with Mr. Green and Mr. Blue seemed interesting, but I never read it. And I kind of also really want to read the Red Hulk stuff, the original Red Hulk stuff. Um, and then Immortal Hulk, I read about three or four issues of that. That series, from what I hear, is just fantastic, and uh, I really should read that one as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of Hulk stuff that I could read rather than a lot of Hulk stuff that I have read. All right, that's it. Another lengthy episode. Sorry about that. Next episode, we cover Vision, Spider-Woman, Scarlet Witch, Thing, Daredevil, Thor, Iron Man, Storm, and Spider-Man. Send me an email, peter at com, or visit the website, thedailyreels.com. Let me know what you think about these episodes. Also, follow my Instagram at uh, thedailyreels. Uh, I have an update about the Operation Laptop Rebuild fundraiser. We are now at 31% which is just awesome. seems like um, every time I record an episode, um, you know, there's always a, a little bump to announce. So hopefully we can keep that going. Um, if you can support, awesome. Send me an email and I'll give you the PayPal link. If all you can do is send a retweet, that is awesome as well. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 484 for Thursday, August 6th. Happy birthday to my mom. Uh, talk to you soon.